So I would like to welcome everyone to this uh, top level panel on one of the most critical topics that the industry is facing today. Fleet maintenance and fleet renewal are the inevitable everyday challenges that every ship owner uh, has to face. So we are very proud to have with us uh, a top level panel. Uh, I would like to start by thanking Knut uh, uh, for DNV's uh, partnership with us uh, all over the world. Uh, it is really wonderful to work with you and thank you for your support. Um, and of course, I would like to thank uh, our panelists, uh, Claire, Gary, Torsten and George for being with us today. And without any more delay, I will turn it over to Knut again. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Nicholas, for that uh, kind uh, introduction, and also from my side, uh, a very, I'm very appreciative of the efforts that you, Nicholas, and Capitalink are doing. Uh, but let's uh, get on with the panel discussion. So, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is is Knut Olbeck Nielsen. I'm the CEO of DNV Maritime, and I'm very happy to be your host for this panel today. Now, our panel will lend uh, its collective expertise to the topic of the fleet renewal challenge, options for the existing fleet and building ships of the future. And uh, before we get started, let me quickly introduce you to what I am sure you will agree is a top class lineup of speakers. So first we have uh, Mr. George Wells, Global Head of Asset and Structuring, Cargill Ocean Transportation. And uh, George, you are based in Geneva. Uh, second, uh, we have Mr. Gary Vogel, CEO of Eagle Bulk Shipping, based in Stanford, Connecticut. And uh, thirdly, we have Mr. Torsten Pedersen, Chief Operating Officer of C-SPAN Corporation, based in Vancouver. And last but certainly not least, we have Ms. Claire Wright, General Manager, Commercial and Shipping for Shell Shipping and Trading, uh, just outside of London. So thank you all uh, very much for joining us today. It is uh, really great to see you. And as always, it's a pity we cannot meet face to face, but I'm also really pleased to notice that we all become really digital savvy uh, during uh, this uh, past uh, time with the pandemic. So, um, uh, Welcome all panelists. I will uh, let you have uh, your chance to, to address some, some questions. Uh, but in the, uh, just as a small introductory, uh, let me say that um, you know, uncertainty is really the operating reality of today's shipping industry. International, regional and national regulations are slowly dialing up the pressure uh, on uh, the shipping industry and on ship owners who are now required to comply with a dizzying array of current and future environmental rules. And adding to this complexity of decision-making is that cargo owners and charters are also under a growing compulsion to demonstrate their commitment to green operations throughout their uh, value chain. Despite the development of several vaccines, the global pandemic is still having a suppressive effect of seaborne trade, making long-term uh, long planning you know, really uh, difficult. And furthermore, emergent fuels and technologies are creating a new risk picture, which, unless properly managed, 
threaten the pace and success of transformations towards a digitalized and carbon neutral future. So with all this in mind, making the right decisions on fleet renewal and the existing fleet is at best not straightforward, at worst is downright difficult. So during our conversation today, I hope that we together can tackle some of these issues and breathe some new life into the debate surrounding them. And so, uh, so without further delay, let us begin um, the discussion. So I would like to uh, address the first question to you, Gary, and then maybe if Torsten could add a few supplementary comments. So uh, in DNV, we estimate that up to 30,000 vessels 30,000 vessels will not meet the IMO's upcoming EEXI regulation. And to what extent will EEXI impact your operations and what strategies are you implying to ensure that your fleets remain compliant? So Gary, please. Um, well, uh, good morning and thank you, Knut. Um, very much appreciate the question. I'd start by saying, first of all, we're uh, confident that EXI is going to help move the industry forward uh, towards the um, carbon intensity goal. And uh, we're looking forward to its adoption at MEPC 76, which will be in June. I mean, the primary goal, of course, is the carbon emissions reduction. But it's also, I think, important to talk about the fact the positive supply side impacts, which will move things along in terms of fleet renewal that you, you talked about, given the speed reduction and also inevitable what we believe will be inevitable scrapping of of the oldest and the least efficient and therefore the you know least environmentally friendly uh, vessels i mean we've gone through a pretty significant fleet renewal over the last four years encompassing 46 ships and um so because of that most of our fleet will be only marginally impacted by exi and many of the newer ships won't be impacted at all um we have three ships over 15 years old uh which will be impacted significantly but if I can say, if past this prologue, I think it's fair to say those ships likely won't be part of Eagle's fleet in uh, January 1st, 2023, when this regulation is expected to come into play. So to put it in context, you know, we, we've calculated an impact of about a quarter knot across our overall fleet on a theoretical basis. But we, when we overlay that into real world, it's more like one percentage point. So it really, for us, would have a minimum impact. Having said that, across the segment in general, for us, the Supermax bulk segment, it'll be more dramatic. As you said, tens of thousands of vessels are going to need to cut power. We estimate that um, the average age in Supermax is about 10 years. Supermax Ultramax is about 10 years old overall, which happens to correlate for when EEDI first came into effect. And prior to that, and before, of course, that was before Echo ships, you know, many of the ships were designed at 14 and a half, 15, even greater speeds. And so for their dead weight as compared to the, the more efficient ships, you know, that are less than 10 years old. So within bulk, at least, EXI doesn't look favorably upon overpowering, and it could result in a reduction of one and a half, two knots, sometimes even greater. And these are pretty significant reductions that we think will point towards a two-tier market um, where vessels will be all forced to sail at significantly uh, slower speeds. And within that group, we think there'll even be a subset where there's, it'll be so significant that the ships will effectively become economically, you know, unviable and therefore will go to more scrapping. Um, I'll just also, if I, if I could take a second and just quickly talk about, you know, carbon intensity indicator, you know, that like other decarbonization alignments 
you know, such as Poseidon principles or sea cargo charter, that'll get progressively more stringent as we go on, which contrast to EXI, you know, which is fixed, essentially fixed for a vessel unless you do retrofits and things like that. So the way we're ensuring we remain compliant with our fleet is aside from S&P transactions that we've done, but is also things like low friction hull paints, you know, application of propulsion modifications, leveraging data and things like that. I think under overall, you know, where I started, right, we're strong advocates of these regulations to improve efficiencies and move the fleet towards lower emissions. And we think that these, along with, if I can get in uh, a carbon global, uh, you know, carbon levy will collectively help to push us towards decarbonization across the fleet. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Gary. That's very interesting. And and two tier markets and an increase in scrapping. That's uh, that's uh, significant impacts to the markets. Torsten, um, any additional views that you'd like to share with us? No, may, maybe adding to uh, maybe adding to what uh, Gary said uh, at the end. We also uh, firmly believe that uh, regulations needed to set a floor for the lowest common denominator. Um, and it's something that uh, we believe that we will take in C-SPAN and a very active role going forward in, in discussing with regulators and coming up with coordinated efforts to, uh, along with industry stakeholders, um, uh, to avoid a complex web of uh, national and regional regulations where, where industry players can just opt out at convenience because that's not really going to take uh, the industry or the world anywhere. Um, Tagging on to uh, what Gary said, um, EXI, uh, certainly there will be an impact. Uh, it's a set target uh, and there will be uh, vessels that operationally will not uh, be able to adhere to the requirements and where modifications will be uneconomical. Um, but right now the uh, regulations around it are not overly punitive, so it looks more like it's uh, a vessel with worse, worse EXI rating will, will be trading at a discount and uh, eventually become un uneconomical to operate. So it's more of a supply demand driven exit from the fleet, but there will be more scrappings uh, naturally. For us specifically in, in C-SPAN with the large fleet of container vessels that we have, we, we are probably a little bit better off than, than many other parts of the industry that our vessels are fairly high powered. Uh, so for even for the older fleet, engine limitations may is often sufficient to adhere to the targets that are set. And we've obviously got, started going through that for our entire fleet. And, and the speed reductions that, that we're looking at are, are some that we would anyway adhere to around 99% of the time. So the EEXI is, is not something, uh, it, we see it as a great step, but it's not something that, that we see will have a great impact on our fleet. Um, Gary mentioned the carbon intensity indicator, and that's potentially a much more impactful driver because it gets, it's getting progressively uh, more stringent year on year. And it also, uh, with its tie into Poseidon principles, will have an uh, impact on the financing side of the business. Um, and and that is something that we certainly have. Uh, we have a group of naval architects and data scientists sitting looking at this. We have a young fleet, but a lot of this is uh, a lot of the regulations are still uh, TPD. So uh, we are we are working on how we will be able to adhere adhere to also the uh, carbon intensity indicator targets that will come. 
great insights, Torsten. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, so the uh, engine power limitation might not have that much, uh, say, impact as uh, slow steaming is already taking place in, in many segments. Now, um, let us uh, turn to first Claire and then George, uh, representing the charters in, in, in a way. Um, and as a, as a charter, how important is it for you to <laughs> demonstrate improvements on the CO2 emissions in your value chain? So, Claire, please, if you could have a, a go at that first, please. I will. Thank you very much. Um, well, as you know, Shell has more than one role in the shipping industry. We are a fuel supplier as well as a charter and a ship operator. But in both cases, our focus is on reducing and avoiding emissions as much as we can today whilst also working on the zero carbon solutions needed to achieve shells, and we hope in time the industry's target for net zero by 2050 in step with society. So thinking about today, first of all, we're focused on three areas with our own vessel emissions. The first is on operational efficiency and energy efficient technologies, uh, such as air lubrication and wind, uh, because these reduce fuel consumption and therefore, of course, also emissions. We also think it's critical to think about energy efficiency when we think about the longer term, because for shipping to use lower energy density fuels in the future, like hydrogen or ammonia, ships will need to be significantly more efficient than they are today to avoid compromise on cargo space. The second area we, we look at is in the design choices that we make for our new build vessels. So our new series of LNG carriers, for example, are 60% better in terms of their carbon emissions when we compare them to um, the early 2000s steam turbine LNG carriers. And then for our long-term oil tanker new builds, we've been choosing LNG dual fuel propulsion for those because we see LNG as the lowest emission and the cleanest fuel that's available globally today. And obviously in the markets where we operate in, that ability to trade globally is very important. And therefore the fuel choices we make need to be globally available. Thirdly, we're also focused on the trajectory that gets us and others in industry, firstly to the IMO's targets, but also we hope in time to that net zero target. And um, Gary mentioned the Sea Cargo Charter, and uh, we are one of the uh, founder signatories of that where through that we will be aligning our emissions alongside other charters with a, re a reduction trajectory through the robust measurement and reporting of our alignment against that trajectory. Um, then separately to that, for those emissions today that are unavoidable, unavoidable, um, there can also be a role for offsetting and we have worked with some of our customers to enable them to compensate for the emissions generated in transporting their cargoes. Um, and so as of February this year, we've delivered seven carbon neutral LNG cargoes to customers. Then turning to the longer term, uh, where we're looking at those net zero uh, carbon solutions, we certainly see the potential for a hydrogen future enabled by fuel cells and started with LNG. And so for this, we're active in that R&D space, uh, collaborating with partners and customers across the shipping value chain um, to develop and deliver these fuels. So we're working to trial fuel cells. We're also through our Hystra project with partners, we'll be operating a liquid hydrogen carrier to enable us to better understand how to handle this product in a marine environment. 
And I think one final thought before I uh, pass the floor over to George is that when we talk about the value chain in decarbonisation for shipping, our view is we also need to look up and out at what's happening in, in other industrial sectors and what net zero fuels and technologies they're developing, because it will be far easier for shipping to decarbonise if we are, I've used the word before, which makes people laugh, piggybacking on what other sectors are doing. And so for us, that's very important that we look not only across the shipping value chain, but across the whole value chain in other sectors as well. Great input, Claire. Now, I think that's a really valid point that shipping is not an island. I mean, we have to look also across to other industries to get inspiration and ideas. And, and George, please um, share with us your thoughts on this. Yes, in terms of, thank you, Newt, um, in terms of where we see pressure to demonstrate improvements, um, we see that really coming from three sources, obviously from within the industry um, to meet the RMO 2050 targets and then, then the other different interim targets, as Claire mentioned. We obviously have our own internal targets that um, we've been set by cargo corporately and also within our own ocean transportation business. But increasingly, we're seeing also pressure from, from our customers to whom we provide freight services. So internally, we're being asked to reduce our emissions per tonne of product we sell by 30% basis by 2030 by against the 2017 baseline, which is actually quite a bit tougher than the 2008 baseline sent by the IMO. And like, like Shell, we're looking at various options to do that from the simplest of just looking for the, the most efficient ships that are on the market. And we use the GHG ratings as a proxy for that. Operational efficiencies um, through use of digital tools, for example, through our investment in uh, the voyage optimization tool at Zero North, together with MERS tankers. Um, installing energy saving devices on board vessels we charter in for, for a long period, working with owners to, to help them improve the vessels. Um, with a particular focus also now on the longer term on, on wind, um, we have a, uh, an interesting development project with BAR technology on that for their wind sails. And then also looking to the future, we're also quite a bit of work now starting to looking at the future fuels, whether that's on ammonia or methanol and, and some others. But as I said, increasingly it's for coming from customers, it's not just internal pressures, it's customers coming from their own corporations, their consumers and their customers. Um, for example, it's a good example of that through the, uh, from, through the aluminium supply chain. They're seeing pressure from their car manufacturers to, to, to be greener. Um, we're seeing more sort of green aluminium products and that's filtering down to us with the alumina aluminium producers looking at how they transport the bauxite, the raw material. So that's coming and we're seeing a similar trend in steel in Europe in particular. So yeah, it's coming from various different um, sides of, of our business and uh, but I fully agree with Claire, we really do need to focus on the full supply chain. Uh, that we operate in and it requires collaboration across all aspects of that to, to, for us to be successful. Thank you, George. Um, that's, um, that's leading us very nicely into the next um, question, actually, because uh, we were talking about, you know, here also the pressure from the value chain as such. Uh, sea cargo chartered, but you know, soon nearly 50% of all uh, ship finance will come uh, through the uh, Poseidon uh, principal signatory banks. 
um, and and the sea cargo charter is uh, you know uh, attracting more uh, attention and backing from the industry so if i could stay with you uh, george and maybe gary could supplement uh, after um, in your opinion is it regulation or is it other market forces uh, which has the most influence over the pace at which the industry will decarbonize please Yes, sure. Yeah, both are obviously extremely important. I think regulation plays the role of helping accelerate change, but also very importantly, creating a level playing field um, for us all to, to operate in. Regulation plays two roles, really. I think first enforcing change, potentially by making a rule to be complied with. So that's similar to what the, um, the sulfur content rule on fuel that we've just been through in 2020, or alternatively by creating a framework that sort of encourages change and help market forces take on the work. For example, by creating a carbon levy or tax to increase the cost of using high carbon fuels. The recent IMO announcements on the short-term measures that we've discussed, the EXI and CII, to try and move industries towards their 2030 and 2050 goals is a good example of the latter, I think. However, to achieve truly um, Global regulation that the shipping industry requires is difficult, especially regulation that would really make the transformation necessary to truly decarbonize our industry. I think the way the IMO works just inherently makes that pretty difficult and quite hard to do. I think it is generally agreed to help make the big leap um, towards zero carbon fuels. We need to price carbon in a way that encourages the transition away from fossil-based fuels. Getting agreement on that at a global scale, whether I think you call it a tax or a levy, while a good ambition, I think is going to be very difficult to implement and will take significant time to set up. And time is something I don't think we really have. So that's why I think we're starting to see a lot more local attempts to regulate decarbonisation, um, the EU ETS, and other discussions around potential inclusion of freight within the Renewable um, Energy Directive are great examples, what I think could become increasingly common. While a global set of rules is preferable, I think we think local schemes are more realistic and, and need, really needed to start moving the dial forward. Um, however, to, 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 to make a change, we need to encourage the freight market to move to zero carbon fuels. I, I don't think being net zero through the use of land-based offsets is not the ultimate solution. And to do that, aside from regulation, the industry really needs um, to help each other de-risk the decision-making that's involved. Um, we as a market need to come together and help each other. I think industry schemes such as um, the Poseidon principles and Sea Cargo Charter that we discussed are good examples of the industry creating more transparency and consistency in reporting emissions, which is also essential for us to move forward together with a common understanding of the problems that we face. But I think the good news is there's huge momentum within the industry to try and set a pathway to zero. There are several industry coalitions working hard to do this. There's getting to zero coalition and the recently formed Mercer McKinley Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, which are great examples. I think that shows a great willingness to do the right thing. They're helping raise the overall awareness and understanding of the potential ways forward, set ambitious goals on top of the regulated ones, and very importantly, trying to help us de-risk the necessary decisions we will have to make. Um, it is important, though, that these discussions involve stakeholders, including governments and other regulators in the supply chain, and not just the kind of on the water part sitting in the middle. We are part of a much bigger whole and every part will be impacted. A broader involvement would help us spread risks and improve decision-making. For example, seeing the impact of freight um, 
within the bigger picture. Um, I read a recent report that suggested decarbonization, for example, might add about $4 million to the total voyage cost of a bulk carrier per annum, but this would only add three cents to the cost of a kilo of imported sugar. So to see it in the bigger picture, I think I think's important. Of course, so to ultimately move forward, um, it needs to be economic, make economic sense for everyone. And I think that's, I think we will need a combination of regulation, particular better pricing of carbon and market forces and very importantly collaboration across the industry to achieve that. Great advice. Thank you, George. So you touched a lot of, of really important uh, topics there and, um, and one in which I noticed um, very much was the international regulations versus the regional regulations, which I think for many comes out as a really you know, challenging point if it were to have regional uh, reg regulations. Uh, but uh, I, I will not start the discussion of that specific topic unless, Gary, you want to pick that specifically up. But please, there are so many things to discuss here. So I leave it to you to, to choose where to go from here, Gary. Okay, well, thank please. you. I mean, it, it probably won't surprise you. I, I fully agree with George. It, it's both market forces and, and regulation that are going to get us there. Um, he also pointed, it's a short runway we have to set the path for decarbonization. It's now. Um, and the industry initiatives, such as getting to zero, are, are going to help also ensure not, that we can speak with a collective voice um, in a highly fragmented industry. Um, also to have a seat at the table on those regulations, that the regulations aren't just well intended, hopefully, but also they have the desired outcomes. And I think there's plenty of examples where that hasn't happened in the past. So I'm, I'm really encouraged and I'm energized by the collaboration and the speed at which I think the industry has taken this up and is changing. Um, we joined Getting to Zero early on, and we're active in the modeling and risk assessment work. Uh, not me personally, but people who, who are better suited for that uh, within within the company. You know, given our size, we can't launch an ammonia fuel project pilot project as an example, but we can support this coalition in the industry to develop a standardized approach of de-risking, you know, decarbonization uh, pathways. And I think Getting to Zero is kind of an all-hands-on approach um, to that common goal. You know, um, also it's been mentioned Sea Cargo Charter. You know, we, we joined uh, pretty soon after it was launched because frankly, the objectives resonate with us, right? Consistent, transparent emissions across the industry um, and that it would bring charters and cargo owners and other stakeholders together uh, with ship operators because we're, we're not just, we're owners and we're charters as well um, with the same emissions data that we're, we're already providing as owners. You know, having said that, I also believe, and I mentioned the word fragmented already, but I you almost can't overstate it, that we're fragmented in many ways. There's too many jurisdictions to reasonably expect that all participants are simply going to do the right thing um, or the jurisdiction. So, you know, I think that regulations are absolutely going to be essential to drive change and ensure the level playing field and broad compliance that, that George referred to. You know, it was far from perfect, but sulfur emissions dropped by 85% on January 1st this year. And so it's something, you know, I don't believe uh, would have happened uh, when it did if left to the industry alone. So I believe the industries, um, you know, it, it's going to take both of them together in concert to, to ultimately get us there in a meaningful and a time efficient way. And I also think, you know, just circling back to the other, the other big one, which is Poseidon principles. You know, that's going to be helpful as well in encouraging ship owners um, to decarbonize, making it you know more difficult uh, 
as less efficient ships find it harder or more expensive to get to get financing around the world. And it goes without saying that, you know, every time additional uh, lenders sign up for the Poseidon principles, it makes the it makes it that much more effective um, on a global basis. So I think I'll leave it leave it there. Very good. Thank you so much. So we could uh, conclude from this very quick round that, um, yeah, the regulations are important and they ensure a level playing field, but there are also uh, a lot of market forces at play that will also drive this uh, forward. Uh, let me now turn to, say, a, a related but slightly different uh, question. So. In, in, and if I could start with you, Torsten, first, and then Claire uh, as a second respondent. So what are the fuels and technologies which most excite you when considering ships for the future? And, and maybe not in the, you know, 100 years from now, but in sort of the nearer future, please. Torsten. Uh, that's, a, that's literally the billion dollar question uh, you're pointing, putting out there. But um, you mentioned fuels and technologies, but it will be fuels that will drive the next generation of vessels. Technologies can help uh, can help reduce fuel consumption, but ultimately it, the, the decarbonization will have to come through fuels. And, and you don't spend $100 million on a new vessel to, to test various digital technologies. So fuels will be the catalysts for, for vessel new buildings as, and, and, and the next generation vessels as we see it. Uh, obviously the current uh, solutions that are there for widespread adoption, they're, they're transition fuels. And I guess it, it's fair to say that everybody in the industry and beyond are, are looking to identify a, a dominant strategy uh, for alternative fuels at the moment. But, but it, so far it's proved elusive. Uh, also because we're grappling with some fundamental strategic decisions as, a sh as for us as a ship owner and across the industry that are quite different from what we've had the past uh, over the past decades where vessel design and, and vessel size have been the, the key drivers. But suddenly when we, when we are looking at, at expanding and, and building new vessels, the, the viability of the investment decisions, they need to include the risk that we build vessels that may be technically obsolete uh, before the end of their normal economic lifespan, given the, um, given the development on, on alternative fuels and their viability. And, and as, a, as a side uh, point, we actually may face competition from other industries for fuel in the short and medium term. Um, but given the capital requirements that in, that's involved here, then from, from a new building or ship owner perspective, it becomes a, a dilemma between doing something now versus waiting for a, an even better solution in the future. And we've all had that in, in different contexts, but it, 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 it rears its, its head here as well. How long do you wait? And, and can you take steps? If you want to take some, make some moves now, can you take steps to hedge your approach in any way? And the latter is what we are trying to do in the, the approach we're following and uh, trying to pursue in, in C-SPAN. Um, our customers are divided in opinions and follow different strategies. And, and as, as a commercial entity, we have to serve all those needs um, and, and they may differ. So what we are trying to do to hedge, the, to hedge some of our 
or mitigate some of our strategic risk, um, we're trying to move it into asking two questions. Um, will the solutions we choose today be able to transition into a viable long-term solution without massive need, of, need for massive reinvestments? And will we be building some deep knowledge in our organization that will benefit our adoption to the next generation of fuels? Um, we have just, as an example, we just signed a contract for, for 10 large uh, container vessels, uh, dual fuel LNG. And we had those questions. Uh, we went through those questions, said, well, is there a viable path? And yes, we saw a viable, potential viable path uh, from LNG via electromethane and possibly in an end state with uh, ammonia, green ammonia, which would require, which we could, where we could use sort of similar vessel design infrastructure. And that is an example of the, of the pathway where we say we can hedge and, and make changes as we go along. There's a vessel for now, which is LNG. It is the re Today, it's the viable, uh, only viable altern uh, alternative, but it's also something that can tra transition along a, a decarbonization pathway. And that's the pathway we, were, we are looking at for, for larger vessels at the moment. Then for smaller vessels and existing tonnage, uh, we are probably looking at different pathways given the, uh, the, the investments needed to otherwise uh, modify those. And there we, are, we will be looking at uh, from conventional fuel via drop-in fuels and liquid biofuels and possibly ending up, uh, we see a path that could go to uh, use of green methanol in, in, uh, in vessels like that. So ultimately, uh, that's probably, we will probably end up with a portfolio of, uh, of uh, vessels as will many other and uh, as will the shipping industry across the board. And, and you would say the winners amongst the alternative fuels. And if we could predict that, I would probably wouldn't be sitting here. I would be betting heavily uh, instead, but um, it will be those that achieve scale and cost advantage. Um, Claire's colleagues will be able to deliver the type of molecules we ask for, but at a, at a certain price point. And as we see it, it will be the, for shipping, it'll be the operational cost that will be the driver. Um, there are capex investments, but they will, as we progress, they will be competed or arbitraged away as a decision point. Because ultimately, it'll be the the price and, and who will pay that will dictate the outcome. There are large investments needed, uh, and the markets will be determining where the bill ends up, and that will in turn influence the the, the future of which which fuels will be the predominant in the future. Uh, but at the same time, there's also an, an impact from some interesting opportunities there are to influence through an evolution or disruption of the existing business lines. Who, who, who delivers the fuels? Who, how, how are you chartering and, and building vessels? Are you delivering with fuel, without fuel? And there, there's certainly, there's certainly some, some considerations and, and interesting strategic moves to be made there. But in short, uh, just to summarize on your question, I guess we'll say, as we said, there's not really a dominant strategy for, for any fuels now, potentially because there won't be any at, at any given stage. And so we believe that the best approach is to find ways to, to mitigate and hedge the strategic moves that we are making today. And as we do that and look to a decarbonization future, uh, 
we are we we now not all in, but we're certainly in with the LNG, and we see a, a long term, longer term uh, future being right now being ammonia and green methanol uh, that are probably our current best bets. It's important to believe in something, Torsten. So I, I really appreciate your views on, on that. And um, LNG as a, as a first step, and then keeping your options uh, open as we progress. Uh, Claire, anything that you would like to add? Um, to what yeah, maybe I'll said? very quickly add that um, we certainly see that there could be a difference between deep sea and short sea trades. But we certainly see that the global shipping industry, the internationally trading vessels, it would be ideal if the industry in the end coalesces around one fuel, as we have today, or possibly two fuels. But when we look at future potential fuels for shipping, we look at three things, one of which speaks to that global need for the availability of fuel, which is, as I've mentioned before, what are other industrial sectors doing that we can build upon? Because if, for example, we have heavy industry or heavy duty road, often which are situated around ports. If they are using a particular fuel, then there's the opportunity to spread the cost and the building of that infrastructure so that what then is needed for shipping is that last mile, which is what we see today with LNG, where LNG is globally available and what is needed to be developed is that last mile infrastructure. The second is which fuels will be technically feasible, safe and scalable in a marine environment. And the third is which pathway offers the lowest cumulative emissions, because whilst we're thinking about the end state, we also need to think about what we emit between now and then. And based on that, our assessments show that the quickest and lowest emission on a well-to-wake basis for shipping is uh, an end state of green hydrogen enabled by fuel cells and started with LNG. So I mentioned earlier that we are following a similar strategy with our own new builds of choosing LNG, but also focusing on energy efficiency and R&D. And I uh, know we've been told that we don't have much time left, so I'll stop there, please, <clears throat> and let you uh, uh, ask more questions. Thank you, Claire. So, yeah, we have a couple of minutes left. So let me just um, throw in a, a slightly different question for all of you for a short and crisp answer. So we talk a lot about digitalization and decarbonization. And as we are progressing on this journey, are there any safety issues, safety gaps that we need to be aware of? And uh, I, I don't know who wants to go first. Maybe, Gary, you could kick us off, please. Sure. I mean, there's quite a few, but this, this is the lightning round, right? So uh, I'll start by saying, you know, we, we can't forget the crew, right? The crew are, are, are individuals who need to be trained in, and every time we put additional systems on board, like, like ballast water, like, like exhaust gas cleaning systems, they pale in comparison to the fuels we're talking about, whether corrosiveness or flammability and, and things like that. So we, we really need to focus on training and crew and make sure that our race you know, to decarbonization does, doesn't get tripped up in, in probably the most important element, which are, are the people on the front lines. People, yeah. Tolson, please. Yeah, a bit along the same lines, different fuels, different risks. Um, and and we, will, we will be addressing them as will anybody else. But I think then this is where it, it, it really hits uh, hits the uh, hits at home that you need to have build a strong safety culture. If you have that, you're going to ask all the right questions, and you're going to have crew and people in your offices that are going to ask the right questions, even to areas they don't understand anything about. 
Um, and that that's if you have the safety culture built, if not, then start building it very quickly. So people and safety culture, Claire, something to add? I would say, yes, safe handling of new fuels, the materials that we need in the design process and construction process, um, the whole life cycle of safety of the vessel's life. George, it's difficult to be the last on this round, but no, quickly, very quickly, you have an additional um, point, uh, please. Yeah, just having been through recently the, the hazard, HAZOPS sort of approval in principle process for our uh, WinWing's wind solution, it's incredibly thorough, incredibly detailed. So I'm confident while there will be risks and challenges, we'll overcome it with innovation and collaboration. Great insights, everyone. And um, from my side, thank you very much for taking part in this panel. I, I hope that everyone listening in enjoyed this uh, as much as we did. And naturally, Nicholas, uh, we could have spent another hour if you were allowed, but I'll, I know that you have a very tight program, so I hand it back to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you uh, to all of you for a great uh, discussion on one of the most uh, critical topics of the industry today. And Knut, uh, maybe we can have another webinar just for that and uh, no time limit. So thank you again to everybody very, very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.